Welcome to the EMS on the Mountain podcast, a show for those interested in austere and wilderness medicine. This podcast provides insight into the unique aspects and challenges of bringing modern EMS into wilderness and austere environments. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of EMS on the Mountain. Today's episode, we're going to bring you another interview. Tonight, we're joined with Mr. Moose Mutlow. Is that how you say your last name? Yes, Mutlow. Excellent. And so we don't really have much of an agenda tonight. We are going to talk about a few topics with Moose here, but this one's going to be a bit more of a, I don't know, a free form. We'll see where this thing leads us, conversation. But to start that all off, Moose, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you kind of got involved with the Wilderness EMS first responder scene? So I was involved in outdoor education for a long time, more than 30 years. I was an outdoor guide around the world in Southern Africa, Australia, Europe, and the United States, and moved from guiding as my body started to fall apart in my 30s (laughs) to be more of an office person. And got involved in environmental education, working in national parks on on the West Coast. And being in national parks, you also have exposure to all the other things that are going on. And I I got picked up to work with Search and Rescue in Yosemite. And I've worked with Yosemite Search and Rescue for the best part of 20 years as a specialist in swift water rescue and recovery. And more recently as a lead trainer for Family Liaison Officer which is the primary person who works with families during a recovery mission or a search mission with Mm -hmm. an instant commander's representative that helps to insulate the team from the emotional load of that and also to give the family the exposure that they need if they have questions or they they have to hear really tough news. Yeah, no, and I will tell you, and Mike will probably give the same sentiment, but both Mike and I used to work for a long time in local search and rescue here in where we're at. and a lot of times the the searches we'd be sent on were they weren't advertised as recoveries but it was a known it was most likely going to be a recovery most likely a suicidal type individual and so that was something that i think was lacking out here and from my experience you know with somebody to actually be with the families within operations they'd hang out in the operations and planning cells and people would give them updates but i don't think there was ever a really good effort made to have somebody like that a liaison to actually explain what's going on and help them through the process. And then, of course, yeah, you know, if, if it, it does turn out to be that bad news, somebody to help move them through that. So I think that's that's really good that you're doing work in that arena because I, I have seen that that is definitely a need. And I think often in search and rescue, you, you're focused on that one person you're trying to rescue or recover, that one victim, but there are multiple victims. Trauma affects everybody. It affects the team. It affects the command. It affects the family. And if you, you can mitigate it early on, you can make contact and create a stabilizing, warm, communicative landscape for them, then mm-hmm. the chances of people being healthier post that exposure is greater. So I think our investment is definitely in trying to be kind to people. Yeah. And even though it's uncomfortable to talk about death or talk about this ambiguous loss, maybe because you haven't got a resolution, you start to give people the tools and the language to be able to go back to their community and have difficult conversations. No, yeah, and that's really good. And uh, actually, another example I was just thinking is Mike and I just at the park we support, there was a, a pretty significant incident. You know, it was a 
basically worked a traumatic arrest and the individual did not make it. There was really significant multi-systems trauma going on there and, and they weren't going to make it. But what made it very interesting for us once we figured it out was besides that we knew there were some friends with him, it turned out his father was there also on scene. And once we identified who that was, it kind of changed a little bit of the dynamic. And then we were able to spend a little bit more time dealing with him a little bit more one-on-one. And we allowed him to help and assist with some of this stuff once the determination was made that, yeah, this, was, this wasn't going to go any farther and that we're going to have to terminate our resuscitative efforts. He wanted to be a bit more hands-on. And you know, from the studies and things I've read, a lot of people find that that is actually very good for the family. And so you know, we allowed him to kind of help there with some of the things at the end and just kind of be with his son. And I think overall, it was probably better that we did that instead of having somebody just take him by the arm and shoo him away so that he wasn't involved. And I think it's a little bit better, yeah, you know, for his mental health as well, kind of seeing the efforts that were done and then him being able to have a bit more closure from his end, you know, right there on scene and then follow on as well. Um, but then with what, that, what you, sh- yeah, what no, you showed there was humanity. You showed humanity in a moment where you're stressed or you're dealing with this as well is you took time to think about where he's at and yeah. to meet his need. And I think that that is so laudable because sort of multiple incident landscape where you're just, trying to, you're just trying to stay ahead yourself, you're just trying to stay healthy yourself. Sometimes that, that next layer of, of family get abused, they get ignored because we just don't have the capacity, which is understandable. But in this event, you did the right thing. And that's, you're right, the research shows if you can hold somebody's hand through that and you can help them be exposed in a supportive manner to some of these traumatic pieces, it becomes a little less traumatic because it becomes real in that moment. And there isn't any double guessing and it's a shared space. It's a shared experience. These are all really important. People feel very lonely with traumatic death. People feel very isolated because communities and our culture doesn't like to talk about it or they sensationalize it to make it a story. And again, it loses its humanity. Yeah, no, very, very good points. And I think what I like to see, and when I've heard when you first approached me talking about the work you're doing on the, you know, the wilderness search and rescue and EMS side is good because Mike and I both also do work with local, you know, we'll call them just urban, regular EMS resources, right, and ambulances and such. And so, yeah, I, I don't know how many I do a year, multiple cardiac arrests or other scenes of death. And there's always a lot more resources there available. You know, there's usually, you know, a senior fire officer or a supervisor that shows up and is able to talk to the family and help work with that. But in the resource limited environment, like we often find ourselves in these wilderness scenarios, I think it's it's something that the rest of us, like me and Mike, you know, the, the two guys that were actually, we were the, realistically for quite a while, we were the only two actual providers that were on scene. Everybody else was a bystander initially. And so I think a lot of people in our arena in the wilderness EMS piece or austere medicine, uh, I think that's something that they just need to be more aware of as they come across these situations is there's not going to be this 12-person team that has suddenly showed up at somebody's house. And one of them is actually usually dedicated and been trained more formally to deal with family and other friends or close uh, bystanders that are at these incidents. And so the work you're doing with this, I think, is excellent. And I think I don't know. I mean, certainly we'll put this out on our social medias with my trend link to some other resources. But when you're working in these more limited resource environments, I think that's something that the people who are very focused on 
the care of that patient at the time also need to be aware of those that are around them. And if you can determine it, it's not just some good Samaritans that were also on trail or near the incident, but if there's family and friends, that there should be some attention that can be given to them if possible. If you're able to safely do so and you're not compromising care, then yeah. I think that's something that needs to be done. And I think a lot of times people hesitate because they don't quite know what to say or they might say, oh, I might say the wrong thing. And actually, you're armed with it. You're armed with facts. You know what's happened, so you can report stuff out, and that's truthful. And that's not getting not on into liability, and right? it's a fact. And then you're a witness. You're, you're actually recognizing this is a this is a dreadful situation. Sometimes you don't have to say that much. You just have to be there and sort of make eye contact and hold their hand and listen to this babbling or this confusion come out and tell people it's all right to be confused under this circumstance. What you're saying, you don't, I'm not judging you by this. This is, you're going through a traumatic event. They just need to be close to somebody. And I, I think we're more equipped than we think in that moment to be factual and to be present. And it, yeah. the, the idea yeah. of loss under a traumatic circumstance is... People, as I say, like to practice the language they might use when they go back to their community. They say the, what should be unsaid in a way. Mm. And if they say it right at the get-go, right there and there and there when it's happening, that, that's okay. We can deal with that. It's when people withdraw and they can't articulate it and become more and more isolated and, and move into this, this much more challenging level of grieving or confusion where they may harm themselves or harm those around them that we should be worrying about. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, very good points again. I mean, clearly I would consider you an expert in this area. So this is very good to hear that, you know, generally when I'm doing this work, I'm doing the right thing. And I like to think so. You know, I've, I've taken a couple of training classes just because this, you know, as a paramedic, giving death notifications to families is just one of those things, part of a job. And so I've tried to take a couple of classes and do a little bit of reading on it. So it's, it's good to know, at least I'm not too far off the mark. I'm trying to do the right thing. And all those sort of pieces is we're in, we're in a society that fills space with noise that actually, as you probably well know, when you do a notification, silence is really important. You need a notification to land. You need the idea yeah. that there's, somebody is dead to land and you don't gloss over it and move on you let that silence happen because people are processing in that silence. And that's where you hear yeah. grief and the, and the big sobs. And you don't feel it. You let them sort of deal with their emotions. And then you come back when they've started to slow down and just check in. But silence is okay. Do you find yeah, that nothing. we don't yeah. let the silence happen because we're uncomfortable? Yeah. Or is it, <laughs> or is yeah. it more so we want to we wanna get the information in any public service arena, right? We deal with this all the time, give or take. So I could very easily see people just wanting to hammer out the, all right, here's the next steps. You know, we're going to call the ME, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. It's methodical. It's just a job, so to speak. And sometimes we don't think about the fact that we have to leave as much room for them, regardless of what else is going on or what other paperwork I need to get to or the next call, so to speak. This, this is what I'm doing right now. I like the fact you said leave leave enough room for them, like there. I think that's really important. The idea that we become so focused on the next call or that piece of paperwork you mentioned, and we forget about the immediate and present. And it, we're not talking an extraordinary amount of time. The difference between 
waiting 15, 30 seconds a minute is not that much. And it, yeah. I think a lot of times, as you say, our, our own discomfort, particularly for lay people, you know, you've seen something terrible and you kind of want to gloss on and move on. As professionals, I think there's also a time not to look at your watch or pull your phone out or even be looking at your paperwork. It's just to close it all up and just sit there next to somebody, not opposite someone. In the ambulance, instead of being opposite them, sit next to them on the, on the gurney or looking at the gurney, like all of these positions that share space and, and do it in a less confrontational manner. These are all, as regular practitioners, you do it intuitively probably. And your, your sort of legacy in truth is to, is to look at new EMTs or new paramedics or new people in the responder community and be able to articulate your intuitive response and say, I'm not sure, I found myself doing this and this is why I do it. And I, I think a lot of it is, is sharing what works and what doesn't work. And one of the things that should, should be shared is, is give people room, get their heads around something and process it before you clutter their mind with administration. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, it's obviously great advice and I've seen that happen. And I know on one of my last, we'll call it urban cardiac arrest when, you know, the outcome was negative when we did, you know, we had to call and, and terminate efforts and declare death. Like the rest of the crew was there and they were ready to start just bagging everything up, collect all the trash, get their stuff and run out of, outside the house. And it was kind of one of those, I had to quietly like tell everybody just like, Hey, just slow down for a minute. Give us like two minutes. You can slowly start to pick up some stuff that's in your immediate vicinity, but don't make it look like this mad rush to get out of this person's house right before I have to, you know, officially tell the family that their family member has died. And I think that helps a lot. You know, it's like, because if it was my family, I mean, it's different because I have a different perspective on it than the normal lay person would. But if ever send everybody's like, oh, well, you know, they didn't give a crap. It's like, you know, as soon as they thought they were done, they were like, man, they were out of my house in like second. And I think there's a bit of a perception there that maybe you didn't do everything you could have done or should have done for that person. If it looks like you were just trying to rush out and like, okay, hey, all right, we're here, we're done. Sorry, they died later. And you run out the door. Whereas if you get everybody to just kind of slow down for a minute. And even if it, you're not really doing anything at that moment, just have everybody slow down for a second, not do much, you know, just start slowly, maybe picking up a few things, collecting a few items, and then give whoever's in charge that has to go make that notification, give them that time to make that notification. And like I said, I, I think I have found that when I make that call, I just stand there for a second. You know, obviously don't want to say a word, just try to gauge reactions because I've seen other people then have other, say, medical responses to obviously some very traumatic news. But yeah, so giving them that space, let them process for a minute. And then I found a couple of times when people ask some questions like, you know, you know, did they suffer? Were they in pain? And all of those types yeah. of questions. And if you can answer those, and I've, I've seen other young paramedics want to try and, I won't say lie, but try to make things a little bit easier on the family. And I think that, and again, one of those things that I've read is like, you don't want to be completely like very harsh, realize like, oh no, they were in tremendous pain right up until the very end. But you should give them an honest appraisal of what happened. It's like, you know, hey, in this situation, now it appears that it was very sudden. They probably didn't even know this occurred, et cetera. And a lot of people do better knowing, even if it was uh, not the very best of news, just understanding perhaps how the, the death process worked for that particular individual and let them process it. There's a so. couple of things that I think you make a really good point about be careful about how you create a falsehood. Perpetuating a lie is hard work. And in a world of, of documentation, 
lies can surface really quickly. And so I think giving facts to, to families and being honest, that's the great place to start. And that other point you talked about, about the idea of getting teams take a, a little bit of a timeout and sort of transition into a cleanup after there's been a fatality, that's a tabletop exercise. It's simply getting the, the muscle memory down in the team that says, hey, we've got 50 minutes here. Let's just talk about what we do if we had a cardiac right now, what it would look like, and then start training people that there's this transition where we recognize the person that we called it. We're going to take 30 seconds. We're going to stand back. We're going to take a minute just to quietly collect ourselves. We're going to make it, figure out how the notification is going to happen. And two to three minutes later, we're going to start moving, doing the exit. Just reminding people of that before a shift or regularly on a training schedule starts to perpetuate that as a norm. And I, you've already overwhelmed. You've already expected to do a lot. But actually, this will make the job easier because ritual is an important part of our lives. <laughs> and mm. if we, at the sort of worst time, find a way to formalize this horror that you're consistently set into and you have a pattern that's a healthy pattern, which is recognition there's been a death, allow yourself a moment of science just to think about that, get your head around it and process it. Yeah. That's a really healthy practice. I mean, it's it, the people who've been consumed with PT, with a PTSI or PTSD setup have had this cumulative effect where they just haven't been able to process it at all. And if we can get to a point where we're healthily processing and recognizing, we will have a lot longer in our careers. We will have healthier careers and we will serve not only ourselves, but our families and the people we're trying to help better. Yeah, no, excellent. Yeah, exactly. I had another point I was going to make there, but it was, again, great points all. And I think kind of going circling back a little bit is, I think this is good that, I mean, I honestly have no idea how many listeners we have. You know, we have a thousand some downloads an episode or something, I think now, right? So our audience isn't like huge, but we actually have people around the globe. We actually have listeners from a lot of different countries, which is, even there's, there's only a couple of them, but we got them out there. But I think this is something a lot of people in the wilderness EMS, wilderness medicine piece don't always think about. Because the vast majority of our work revolves around the simple musculoskeletal, broken legs, broken arms, dislocated shoulders kind of arena. And a lot of people that do this work don't always necessarily see someone who has died either on scene due to, you know, maybe they took a really bad fall. Now, obviously, this will, the bigger Western parks or the bigger climbing communities see this a bit more often than us East Coast folks, but they're still out there. And I think it's something that's good that other wilderness providers, this is something I need to be thinking about. And, and like you said, you know, put this into your training. This is something you need to have considerations and at least have a mental map already done up in your head on how this should work when you do have to do that field termination and you have to make a notification to family or friends that are on scene. I mean, I've had to get on the phone with somebody who's like, hey, I'm, I'm calling their parents. Can you please talk to them? It's like, yeah, I mean, that makes it a little bit easier when they're over the phone and you don't see mom and dad's reaction right there. But I think working through your head, even if you haven't seen one yet in your career as a wilderness provider, I think working through it, listening to this episode, going out, maybe taking a couple of classes, doing some reading, you know, this could be, it, it's a beneficial thing. And I think a lot more providers need to be considering it. And I, I, we're very fortunate within the sort of National Park Service Search and Rescue because we get, we're not, we're volunteers, but we get paid. We're emergency hires. So I actually get brought in and I get an hourly sort of backup. Unlike a lot of the majority, 95% of search and rescue teams in the United States volunteer. And 
people give up their time and their expertise and their buying equipment to help other people. And I think there are resources out there that don't cost a lot that people can actually get good professional development. But it's also a realistic piece, which is within the team, what what can you take on? And in a lot of lot of jurisdictions, family liaison is a deferred responsibility to a commission law enforcement, whether it's sheriff or police or park ranger. We're a bit unusual in in the park in that we allow non-commissioned personnel to to do that job. I've just trained family liaison teams in Zion National Park and in Lake Mead. Lake Mead has, the, I think, one of the highest numbers of deaths in the national park system. It's it's in excess of 25 deaths this year already, predominantly in and around drowning and water. And then you've got uh, sort of parts like Denali that, that have clusters because they have a very clear climbing season. But Yosemite Oya Kings is, is a similar number a year, 12 to 20 deaths. And when you deal volume like that, you do multiple calls and you, you, do, you start to learn what works and what doesn't work. So we work really hard to share the lessons that we've learned, whether it's online or with articles or interviews like this, is to, is to encourage people to find their way. One of the things I do is teach teams. And I always say, I go in, I'll teach you a method of doing it. I don't teach you the method. That would be very presumptive because we're all coming in with these different experience levels. And I teach a framework that people can hang their own personality or their skill base on. And it might be 20% of what the job is, but it's a big 20% because you're bringing you, you're bringing the essence of being human into it. And I think that I just keep coming back to that point in a world in which people feel disconnected, isolated. They feel like they don't have power. Just having a simple conversation or holding someone's hand at their lowest point when they've lost a person they love is an incredibly empowering thing for that person. because at their worst moment, they shared it. And it's, it's not all trauma on our end. It, it, for me, it's a very, it has great purpose in helping people at that moment to start to move forward. Right. And, and so I think let's shift a little bit and let's talk about the resiliency and mental health of the, of the responders, right? Those SAR responders yeah. and EMS personnel, right? Like that, it's garnered a lot more attention in the last couple of years especially after COVID and everybody's talking about all the burnout of just nonstop duty and exposure to very sick people and just the physical stress, you know, having to be in gowns and masks and everything so often. So I think that is something that's good. It's, it's making its way to the forefront, much like in the veteran community post the whole nine 11 piece, yeah. you know, since, since then that I think there's been a lot more awareness with the mental health and resiliency for our, our first responders. That is good. That, we also need to take into account, right? We need to be there for those families, but then we need to be there for the team work through these issues. And I think the work of someone like the Responder Alliance with Laura McGladry, which uses the stress continuum, which was developed for combat readiness in the Marine Corps, and then it's been morphed, particularly for the responder community, to look at when you're in the green zone, when you're actually functioning, and then when you're injured, when you get to a point where you can't deal with complexity because you've got that hyper-aroused state and the cortisol's going off, in order to keep you going, and it in itself is unhealthy. That work is allowing peer groups not to be therapists or counselors, but to recognize when their co-workers are struggling and then help to raise the awareness in that individual to get professional care. And I think sometimes we look to self-heal, and actually we need professional care (laughs) because you need somebody to help you 
flick that switch from hyperarousal where you're just on the whole time and stop that cortisol production, which is laying that donut around our, start, around our waist to get to a point where you go back to the green, where you, you've got healthy practice, where you aren't abusing drugs and alcohol, where you aren't in a dysfunctional relationship, where you are just grumpy and dangerous the whole time. You get to a point where you can actually live your life. So Responder Alliance, as I said, is a really good place to, to look. There's a bunch of 911 emergency health groups as well. And I think any of them are the smallest board of them out there to look at is a is a good thing and a good place to start. Yeah, no, that's excellent. And uh, I know where me and Mike do our work, they try to put together after some of these traumatic events, they try to put together the sessions for those that were involved, trying to get everybody to come in, those that need to speak with professionals or peer groups. So I know there's there's definitely work going on in that arena, but it's I think this is another area that probably still needs more development. Some places are doing much better than others, but I think it's good that that the resources are starting to be out there for people after these events. And I think I think sometimes we look for after action reviews or critical incident stress management to heal us. And actually what heals us is going to a football game and shouting at the shouting at the team or it's going for a really nice walk with the dog, or it's it's for me, it's getting on the water and being in my boat. But it's it's actually doing the things we we used to do. So when we're stressed out and when we're at a hyper arousal, we stop doing all these things we love doing. We find excuses why, and we just sort of drift away from them. And it's just rediscovering the active parts of our lives, the things that we were passionate about that actually recharge us and let us go back in and do our job well. So there's was, also, there's a piece there that says healthy life practice is going to help you as much as those conversations. There's a very important part about diet. There's a very important part of physical activity. And it, when we've been working heavy shifts and we haven't had a day off for weeks, it's really hard to motivate to go outside because you just want to sit inside and binge Netflix and go to sleep after one episode. And that's all understandable. But that's why you, we need to develop healthier life practice. And that takes your family and your friend group. And often when you're hyper aroused, you lose your family and your friend group. So it's, it, it's the intervention needs to be earlier and needs to be a little bit more pragmatic. So I was going to ask, you brought up incident debriefings. I've been reading quite a bit recently. Can you speak to, I'll call it the latest research, the latest information on, on doing there's a number of words for them, but CISD or critical incident debriefings after the fact, where we all pull out the folding chairs days after the event and sit around in a circle and bring it all back to the forefront. Like, wh where do you stand on that? I trained as a system, so critical incident stress management. I'm not a fan of it. I think it's it's a it's a methodology that maybe hasn't evolved. And I, I'm sure you could have somebody on who'd be like quite insistent that it's, it's a very good method. I think the idea you sit down for an hour with people you don't know come in and tell you, take you through the whole thing. And then suddenly after an hour, it finishes and you're like, you're healed. It's kind of nuts. I think it's a lot longer piece. Some of the trauma work that's done now looks at checking with people three days after an event, three weeks after an event, three months after an event, and then keeping some level of documentation about whether what people's sleeping patterns are or what they're thinking about or how they're retracing. So you get this linear uh, presentation of data. It's, I think trauma is much better understood now as the idea you treat it like, a, like an ankle injury where you isolate, you elevate it, you rest, you recuperate it. And it isn't done in an hour after action review in which 
potentially three people talk out of 12 and the most injured person doesn't say anything because they're still traumatized. <laughs> so that's one of the reasons that I favor something like stress continuum where you self-evaluate when you're healthy and you're unhealthy and you share that with your team. And then the team can check in and you can see the change in someone's performance or how they're handling themselves. And then you can help raise the alarm and remind them that they identified that when they weren't doing something, that isn't a good sign. And then you access your employee sort of support program. Mm -hmm. But to have a really good after action review, there's a big difference between talking about whether somebody put an anchor in the right place or you put the line in correctly over this is the emotional trauma I've just been through. It's a, that's right. a very different level of review. And yeah, as somebody so. who had high exposure to trauma and then had that meltdown, and I, and I give the example of the inability to deal with complexity was my sort of red flag, was when my wife was like, oh, we have a problem, was I opened the refrigerator and I had the most amazing ingredients for making a sandwich. They were amazing. But there were so many I couldn't make a decision. So rather than actually deal with that complexity, I shut the refrigerator and I just remained hungry. And that's a traumatic response. And so we recognize it on all these different levels. Everybody's different. Nobody's trauma is any more valuable than anybody else's. And I like that idea of a definition of trauma. Trauma stops us from living the best life. Yeah. And when you apply it like that, you're like, oh, this is relevant to me in this aspect. And there's a way back. It isn't, it isn't fatal. There is a way back. Yeah, that's like a, everything you've described in the last 20 minutes. So I, I could, you're describing me. So it's probably time I care a little more. And you don't have to carry it alone. It's your family and your friends and your employer. Mm-hmm. And, you're, and it's identifying how you can get to that green place again. Right? It's, what you're experiencing is not unusual, but it, it isn't the end. No, nope, understood. I've done that. I've stood in the fridge and stared and closed it. And yeah been made fun of yeah <laughs> yeah so uh, a couple lectures i've seen and i'm gonna have to try and find but uh so one of the other there's a, one of the doctors that's out there's kind of been leading the charge in some of this and very much like you're saying it's like at the individual level you need to process whatever that event was however you best process that in a healthy manner obviously not through you know drug and alcohol abuse that kind of thing but I think the general the general gist of the of the thought process in this one was if thoughts of the call or that event come up, you kind of need to let them just come up. And it's one yeah. of those if you keep trying to suppress them, that's when we start seeing those long term signs of the PTSD that in five years you're going to snap and something really bad is going to happen. That if you're having the nightmares, you just need to wake up and you need to kind of process what you just thought about, what, you know, and mentally work through it and. I think you mentioned like the three days, three weeks. And one of the things was, is, you know, within three weeks, if you haven't been able to kind of work through that processing and acceptance on your own, at that point, you most definitely need to be going out and seeking additional resources, whether that's peer groups or other professional help. Um, But the, the suppression is the piece that I think people need to, you know, that's that old school manly man mentality of we don't cry and we don't process this trauma. You know, we just kind of tuck that stuff down. And then it might be a few months, might be a few years, but eventually it's going to come to the surface and it's probably going to end up being a very negative response at that point. Yeah. I mean, essentially living a lie. <laughs> that's, yeah, right. that's what it comes down to. It's like, hey, how long can I keep this charade up? It's, and so I remember talking to somebody appeared. He was like, I don't worry about the people who are crying. I worry about the quiet ones. 
And he's right. Like mm. the people who emotionally are able to just blare it out and maybe do some writing or some creative piece with that are in a better position. I think we're, our culture is changing around the manliness and the sort of the macho piece because it is unhealthy and it destroys us. And you won't get to enjoy your retirement. Like you, you'll get to retirement and within two to three years, the physical cost of this stress is going to work at your heart and you'll probably have a coronary when you retire before you've actually chance to retire it. I mean, enjoy it. So dealing with it here and now is the healthiest thing. Exactly. Yeah, that's good. And I think that's, I mean, geez, we can just look to the, at least in the U.S., the fire service and how many career firefighters after they've done their like 30 plus year careers. I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but within five, 10 years, there's this huge percentage of them that all usually die yeah, some sort of coronary problem. And a lot of that was the continued stress response, buildup of the cortisol and everything else. But I think a lot of that, as you've mentioned, is you maintain some of that stress that doesn't go anywhere because you've repressed a lot of these issues. And it just helps contribute to that, you know, that decline once you're out of that environment and you're kind of out of your, you know, would be ongoing, almost nonstop peer group of coming into work, doing your duty shifts every couple of days with your guys. And then it's like you kind of lightly maybe talk around subjects or maybe that one call, but you never really fully address it. So you've kind of kept it at bay for a few years. And then when you're retired and it's just now, maybe it's just you, maybe your, your spouse, your significant other, whatever you got, then all of a sudden these things just start to catch up because that group you had is now gone and it's, it's a different phase in your life. And if you haven't dealt with it by then, when it suddenly starts coming back, I think, yeah, it's, it's going to have those negative consequences and kind of helps prevent you from living that best life. And, and, and that comes down to leadership is that you need leaders to step up and say, no, we're going to take this seriously. We're not going to tease you because of this thing because you got emotional. We're going to listen to you and we're going to give you support. If you, use, if you say things like band of brothers, you need to act like a true brother, which is through thick and thin and not just the laughs and gear, like the tough stuff too. And I think sometimes there's a very surface treatment of that because it's still around that macho piece, the bit that, oh, this hasn't, this hasn't disturbed me. This isn't bothering me. It has no effect on me. And yet it clearly does because you have no friends. You're pretty grouchy because you're traumatized. You have terrible habits and they just further isolate you. Like this is the effect. And so when somebody appears like that, we just have to keep working them to try and get to a point where they can be a friend because they're so damaged. And the idea that PTSD, the post-traumatic stress disorder, is you see PTSI now, post-traumatic stress injury, with the idea that if you're injured, we can rehab you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We can recuperate. We can recover from an injury. It isn't this sentence of like, oh, you're messed up. I, I worked um, Vietnam veteran courses in the Everglades as part of the Agent Orange program with Outward Bound many years ago. And you have deeply traumatized men and women from combat in Vietnam, nurses, frontline snipers, everything. And I wonder now if we had looked at them clinically as injured rather than PTSD, whether we would have served them better because they would have had a message that was more hopeful. And I'm not saying that PTSD is a genuine condition and it needs a clinical response, but there is also a significant proportion that are, are simply injured and we just need to, to help them with that and give them the room to mend. Yeah, and I am a veteran, right? So 20 plus years. And, uh, and that's, I did, you know, I was sent to a CISM training thing to, you know, help 
people, yeah. you know, post-deployment or post-event to deal with some of these things. And, you know, as an infantry guy, you're kind of like, what? We're going to sit in a circle and talk about stuff. But I'm not a fan of the CISM, you know, at least the legacy thing that I went through and a lot of people still practice. I'm with you. I don't, I, th- I think there's a lot of research that says that's not necessarily the positive way to do certain things. I think it was a good attempt. But I will say that I think the veterans these days are getting much better resources than their predecessors, right? Just because some of the mental health and, and PTSD or PTSI, I really like that term. I think it's a lot more understood now than it was before. So I would say this last couple of generations over the last couple of decades definitely have better resources available to them. There's, I mean, there's a lot of peer support groups that are out there. And I know there's a lot of messaging amongst that community of, you know, check in on your brothers, you know, just because you're no longer in, you're not serving together anymore. Social but, media, but I would, everything is out I would, there, you know, check on people, would, see how they're doing. Yeah. And I would say that they, we've got tremendous resources, but we still have the highest suicide rate for young men and women who are veterans. Oh, yeah. We still have this appalling rate. And I think a day. So some of the, some of our treatment needs to change as well. Like I'm deeply embedded in working in the natural world. And I went back to Outward a couple of years ago with a group of veterans, again, down in the Everglades. And we went out onto the Barry Islands. And we're not therapists, but we put people in nature to share sort of dolphins catching mullet on the beach or ospreys plunging in and getting fish or manatees swimming by. And you put people in this incredible environment where everything slows down and they have a shared life experience. And suddenly the talking that happens on that level because of the environment they're in becomes a much more of a healing pathway because it isn't neon lit in an urban center in which they're they're struggling to get public transport and they're wondering when they're going to eat. We need to be more creative in the way that we deal with mental health and more collaborative and loving. And and, and a a big part of that is allow people to feel the wind on their face, to hear the tidal race of water whipping by a beach, and to actually have that that fun element to being in the outdoors yeah. again, where it was, and now it's a place of peace. Yeah. And I think a big part of dealing with trauma is simply looking at people and saying, you're safe. Right now, you're safe, emotionally and physically. It's like a debrief. You're, you're safe in this environment. We're going to respect you. And that's, that's the other key part in getting people to turn off that hyperarousal or start to contemplate dialing it back. Yeah, no, and that's that's a great point. I love, you know, because again, obviously I wouldn't be involved in the wilderness EMS piece if I didn't like the outdoors and everything else, right? But uh, I actually have a couple of good friends that work for an organization that does, that deals with veterans and helping them for PTSD. You know, they're based out of Montana. Yeah, and they take guys like fly fishing and yeah. and other events, you know, just to, yeah, you know, engage them in nature. There's another group, good friends of mine are on, and, you know, they just recently did uh, open ocean fishing events, you know, getting guys out on boats, taking them deep sea fishing and things and, and events like that, which... So I think those are really good. And I think it's, I think people probably enjoy going out on, we'll call it therapeutic events like that way more than they would ever want to sit inside of some room in a circle in some chairs talking about something. It's much better to get them out there in a natural environment and just kind of let them start talking and let the magic happen naturally, basically, you know, it just, I think, yeah, I think you're spot on that that's, that's the environment that, I think it's probably one of the more beneficial things that we can do with people. And I think what, one of the things about the National Park Service is as a veteran, you can get a free park pass. You, know, you can turn up and you get a free pass forever. You can just enter your national park from 400 or 300 something 
units around the country. What an amazing gateway to a healthier lifestyle. And I think we need to do a better job of broadcasting that and making sure the veterans recognize that they're welcome in part. And the same thing for the responder community. And we should advocate advocate strongly in our local towns, counties, and within the state that a similar thing is is exercised for state parks. All responders with their families should be able to freely access those pieces. You won't necessarily get into camping, but you should be able to go in. And again, we're encouraging that healthier option. No, and I think that's a great point is there are are a lot of these organizations that are doing this with the veterans. And I know there's a couple, but yeah, it's like we definitely need to get the the first responder community involved in these programs a lot more than probably many of them are aware that they're out there. So yeah, I think some sort of messaging campaign. Yeah, like you said, like if you're a firefighter, paramedic, EMT, police officer in, in whatever state, you know, yeah, you should have access to your state parks at least so yeah. that yeah you can go out there yourself your family your friends and go hike go fish camping trips like like mike and i you know we've had several non-work related camp events where like we say you know we like to go burn wood and drink beer just sit around the campfire talk to each other you know we've got a, some other first responder friends and it's like same thing it's like you know we might talk about some some military stuff that we did we talk about first responder stuff we did and then we just talk about stuff but it, it is it's getting people out there and uh in those environments. And I think, yeah, it's, it's certainly something that needs to be promoted more and available. And the point you made there is you go out with Mike and you talk about some work stuff and you talk about some this and that and some other stuff is I think a lot of what we do in responding is, is myth is you, you talk about missions, you talk about this event, you talk about this incident and you learn from it and you repeat it. And sometimes they're funny stories and sometimes they're sad and they have a lesson in them. But I think it's really important in that mythology that we also bring fresh stories in from other people that maybe aren't our job, that are fishing, that are hiking, that are going to a game. Like it's when we're solely based in that little envelope of response, that repels other people coming in because when they're not members of it. And actually, there's a lot of strength in diversity of experience. So diversifying a, a group of friends is a really important thing because it allows other experiences to come in and help inform our own and for us not to be lonely in that. And I think for responders, I think particularly for police, it's a, it can be a very isolating thing Mm -hmm. for them to break out of the command presence and have friends outside because of trust issues, but it's worth the risk because you'll be in a healthier place. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we're going to kind of move on from some of the, which don't get me wrong, all excellent discussion. And I think it's going to be a really good episode. I think we're probably going to get a lot of listeners because of it. But uh, so tell us about this uh, a book that you've written. I've written a couple of books. I've written When Accidents Happen, which is a handbook for family liaison officers. And it's just a gut, basically a framework for people to figure out what the job is and how you, you might utilize it. And it's a guide, not the guide. And then I've got an, an, another book, which is called Searching, which is also on Amazon. Both of them are Amazon. You can order them through your main bookshop. And that's a book that looks about, that talks about the effect of being on search and rescue and around traumatic events. And it's a series of stories that are funny and sad and emotional about the last probably 15 years of working predominantly in national parks with such and rescue, whether it's swift water recovery rescue, 
ambulance calls, ski patrol, or even working with the wildlife unit and, and having to do some EMT work on bears. So, yeah, yeah there's, they're, they're, they're easy reads, as they say. Yeah, no, that's great. And we'll, we'll put links to those on our socials so people can get a look at those as well. So kind of time back, going back into a little more lighthearted topics as well. So having been a long-term member out there with EOSAR, what do you find or what, what would you say was probably the most challenging call that you had or have you been involved with for whatever reason? I think the big calls like a few years, probably at a 20 years ago, we had a, a big wall rescue in October with multiple, with a couple of fatalities and two or three pickoffs on the wall with dozens of people walking thousands of feet into the top of El Cap in, in a blizzard in order to drop it off the edge and start pulling people off. And it had helicopters flying around. And that was probably the most complex one that I was part of. I was a very small yeah. part of that. And then I've been part of other ones that have multiple deaths that at the same time where you're trying to solve where, where people are in the river. You're trying to figure out mm. how to reunite families with their loved ones. And they, they're a detective story that go on for months and you eventually solve when the river's a lot lower and in the grip of early winter and ice yeah. and you, you find them and you, and you bring them home. You don't, I never, I never say I give the family closure because that's incredibly presumptive that suddenly <laughs> yeah. I magically arrive and there's the body and you go, ah, everything's fixed. And yeah. it's not, it's, it's anybody who says that doesn't understand grief, I think, because the journey has just begun for the family at that point. And, and a, a part of that journey stopped for us because we're not searching anymore, but we haven't brought closure. Yeah. That's, that's the family. brought closure to ourselves, not the family. Kind of, but like, I still think about stuff. Like I still think about those, those events. I still process them. It's, yeah. it's, it's a journey. It's like being in a river and there's moments you eddy out in a big pool and you mm. can be there a couple of years and not think about anything. And then suddenly, for some reason, you get out in the flow again and whoomp, you're back on down that ride. And it might be a bit rocky because you have a different perspective because you've got more experience <laughs> or a little bit more news has come in from somebody else and you get to a deep pool and eddy out. But it's just, we're all on this journey as responders. Yeah. And every incident is a different place on that river. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting you, you talk about the river and everything because Mike and I know a couple of guys that work at it. New River Gorge in West Virginia, out there along the river, and it's yeah. you know, and I've done the searches somebody, with them. Yeah, so it goes out on the river. It's like might be hours, might be days, might be months until they until they're able to do recovery. And sometimes, you know, it's never. And so, yeah, it's and, always kind of the, the thinking about you know, and the idea of ambiguous discuss, loss. Yeah, the idea of ambiguous loss, the idea that people don't ever resolve what happened to their loved one, and this suspension of the grieving process because of it. That's a very challenging place for a family to be and for oh, us sure. I, I know rangers that are haunted by not being able to solve cold cases and still yeah. work in the files because they want to they want to bring that person home no yeah. yeah and i think and i think that's a good point and it's like you know because some of these you know especially out like on the water or even even land search and rescue events it's like wow had we started our search in this area first would we have still had a, would we have had a better outcome or would this still have been a fatality if I had been out on my boat and I'd started at this section of the river or the lake first, might I have still found somebody floating vice, you know, submerged. And so, you know, I think that's a tricky part for the first responders as well, too, is like, 
rethinking like, ah, could I have done that better? You know, on that cardiac arrest, if I had gotten IV access quicker, if I had been able to secure an airway faster, would they have made it? And I think it kind of goes back to that. You need to think about those things and you need to process them. And if there really is something to be learned from it, you know, as more of an after action piece or a lesson learned, then acknowledge that, kind of note it, and then move on with it and try to incorporate that into your practice. But at a certain point, I think we have to remember that sometimes there's just nothing that can be done. It doesn't matter if you started your search a day earlier, a day later, maybe you went to a different location first, would it have made a difference? There's no way you'll ever know that. And so lingering on those things and stressing about them well past the time you should be, I think, is something we need to be aware of too. And I, when I involved with families that are trying to come to terms with some of this and they should have, they say I should have, or I would have, or could I, I, I really work hard to say, Hey, we're dealing with facts. This is what we know. It just is. This is, this is what, where we're at. And that when people are looping, trying to find the way that they can make the facts fit their narrative, their sort of chosen narrative, that struggle sometimes never resolves and it becomes unhealthy. But when they can resolve it, they get a chance to actually progress, not move yeah. on, but, but continue this journey with this memory or this to be haunted by this thing a little bit, but they can move. And I, I think that we, it's easy to get stalled out and that can affect us professionally uh, and, emo- and on an emotional level as well, because we never actually process it. We just question it. I think processing right. to me is, is that, is not necessarily coming to terms with it, but breaking it down into the individual parts, recognizing the pattern within it, and then accepting Mm. it, not tolerating it. We live in a world in which we talk about acceptance, but actually we tolerate things because we still still harbor resentment. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's... You know, like we have this sort of reservation. Whereas if you accept, just accept it, it's really, it makes life a lot easier. Just tolerate. Yeah, you st- you're still gotta, you still got to be guessing. You still got to be working those parts to make it how you were right in the end, or how you should have done this. But you just accept what happened and take the lesson from it, and then journey on. That's that's a good place to be. Yeah, that's Where that we- is a fantastic advice right there. And I think that's that's another piece. Yeah, that people really need to understand. It's like, yeah, it's like you need to move on, not just tolerate it and always wondering about the thing because. Yeah, I mean, people that have been in this this work long enough know that sometimes there's just nothing that could have been done. Or even if you would, that five minutes earlier on a call, would that have made a difference? Maybe it would have, but would have the long-term results still been the same? You know, like Mike and I had a very traumatic patient a couple of years ago, a year ago now. I don't remember. They all kind of blend together. But uh, we did what work we could, got the patient evacuated really quickly to the local trauma center. End result was still the same, but had we not been there to do that work, the patient probably would have died there on the side of the hill, and the, her family would not have been able to gain closure and be able to do some of those final things, be at the patient's side and things like that, and yeah. make those decisions. So yeah, while the outcome was still going to be negative, I think there's a very positive in the work that was done and what was well, able I, I, to I'll, be done for that patient and their family. But I would also say, you see, I think that, you know, we, you know that actually. We have to be more positive here. Like yeah. to think still has doubt, but like I know, you, should, you know that because you told me that story very clearly. 
and you know you did the right thing and you you both stepped up and it worked out well for the family it didn't work out positive for the individual but you did everything that you can you know that yeah yeah no, and that's a big difference and maybe knowing is is yeah is um is, is real it's like it's fact yeah no and we've, we've talked about that one a couple of times and it's yeah you still come back to it, it's like no matter what we may or may not have done that day, nothing was going to change the actual clinical outcome. So, I mean, well, not the outcome I'd, I desire for any patient. I accept that that was as good as it was going to get. And what we did for the family was, was just as valuable. Yeah. Good. Well done. Good service. I mean, I think, I think sometimes we talk about service as in the restaurant, did you get good service? Am I going to give a good tip? And actually, I come from a world of service where I, you know, serving others, the idea that we go beyond ourselves, the move from selfish to selfless, and in that our lives are fulfilled, not for personal glory or personal pats on the back, but it's, it's a life well lived is to serve others. And you serve that family and you serve that patient. Yeah. And uh, I think that's something else that whether it's good outcomes, bad outcomes, I think that's something else that the first responder community really needs to embrace is. Mm-hmm. We did a good service for somebody, even if it wasn't necessarily that specific patient. Somebody does appreciate the work that we did do. And you need to look at those positives and and, and be content with we did that. And maybe it wasn't the patient still passed. They died. Mm-hmm. But we did something good for that family. Like they know at least they got somebody was there for them at their, their time of yeah. need and did whatever could be done was done. And so I think we need to just accept that. Even with the patient may not have been a positive outcome, the work you did and and like maybe the compassion you've shown or like you yes. talked about, like just you held that hand, you gave them a hug and just let them know that somebody was there for them. I talk about compassionate objectivity. Yeah. The idea that you give them facts, but you're really caring how you do it. And you, you can empathize, but it's you have this objectivity because you've got all the facts and you, you're the professional. And the other thing that comes to mind in this is that in living lives of sort of, of giving like this, of service, is there's, there's a need for that balance. And I go, there's a writer from the desert southwest called Edward Abbey, Edward Abbey, who's incorrigible and kind yeah. of a contradiction. And he has a great piece where he talks about live half your life in the wilderness, enjoying it, and live half your life fighting for it. And the idea you have this balance where if you're completely immersed in fighting for it, you would enjoy it. And if you just immerse, just immerse yourself in it, you're not going to preserve it. And he says, if you find that balance, you'll outlive everybody else. And he uses profanity at that moment. But I love that quote because it has great perspective. Because in giving so much in that moment, there is a debt. And unless you've recharged it with something else, you will continually be in debt. And you'll get to this point where you, you can't basically service that debt because you're exhausted. And then you leave and you're angry and dis- disheartened with what you're doing and you kind of, you're lost. And it, it, we need to balance that. So as much as you give, you need to find a way to replenish. Yeah, that's, that's, again, that's fantastic advice. and It's a very good way to look at things. I think right now, too, we've been going for a while. I think that might be a, a pretty good place for us to start to wrap this up. Any parting wisdom you'd like to leave us with? Yeah, next time you look at your colleague and you say, hey, how are you doing? And they go, okay, don't be satisfied with that. Yeah. Actually, ask a question that says, what did you do this weekend? And if they say, I sat in a room with the curtains closed, drinking whiskey for, three, for two days, you may have a problem. 
And so mm. be a bit more inquisitive around your colleagues, around where they're at on the mental health, and then be honest with yourself. Just sit down and do a little bit of a inventory and see when the last time you really had fun and figure out how you're having fun and what your plan is going forward to do that because that is the thing that's going to recharge you. And don't look at your work necessary to provide you with everything. It's some stuff outside that's going to be the thing that actually enriches your life. And, and makes you an even better servant in the responder community. Yeah, excellent. Mike, you got anything for us? Yeah, Moose, this has been an absolute pleasure. I really am honored to have met you, and you forced me to think through a lot of things. I just want to double check. It's responderalliance.com that we were talking about earlier, correct? Yeah, and the stress okay. continuum. And Laura, Laura, Laura McGlad okay. yeah, work in particular. She's got a lot of stuff on, on YouTube. She's a nurse. She's an academic. She is nailed. This thing changed my life. When I saw her, I was like, I was sitting next to a, a vet with, with what I would say is PTSD. And he and I were in the same workshop. And at one point we looked at each other and said, hey, we got there in two different ways, but we're in the same place. Mm-hmm. And we both were able to change our view and, and move forward. And, and I, it's, it's, it's extraordinary work that she's done. Excellent. Yeah, so, so we'll, we'll find some links for her as well. So yeah, we'll again, yeah. For sure. To echo Mike, yeah, and this thanks, has been fantastic. Thanks for the invite. I've yeah. really enjoyed talking to you guys. Yeah, look after yourself out there. Mike, I hope, hope you get better as well. I hope the talk <laughs> Well, thank you. Up. And if but there's I anything just, else you want us to do for you in the future, just reach out. This has been great. Yeah, and if, if, you, if you are interested in trainings or anything like that, I, I'm actually, I might be coming, I'm coming to the East Coast actually in two weeks. I'm going to be in Delaware Water Gap mm-hmm. teaching mm-hmm. a family liaison. So if you, if you say, hey, I'm really interested or feel free to give me a shout and I, I can wiggle you into a training. I'll do that. Okay. I appreciate it. Yeah. Right, yeah, Sean, like, thank you very much for the invite as well. No, thank you. We've, this has been a fantastic episode. I hope this one gets a lot of damn downloads. I hope this is one of our peak episodes. So it's a lot of good great. information. Really appreciate you coming and sharing. It was fantastic. All right. Well, fellas, have a great evening. I know it's getting later over there. I'm going to drive home now. All right. See ya. All right, sir. <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for show topics, you can send us an email at the show at emsonthemountain.com or hit us up on social media. We can be found on Facebook and Instagram at EMS on the Mountain, Twitter at EMSOTM, or you can engage with us and a whole community of wilderness EMS professionals at locals.com slash wilderness EMS. Until the next episode, thanks for joining us. And until we see you on the mountain, train hard. Be safe and do good work.